When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I was really a jazz drummer in years. It's just that having heard that drums could be played in another way, having heard it via jazz, then I just bought this to pop. I thought all pop musicians were going to play like that. I didn't know that pop drummers played real simple stuff. And as I'm testing my mic, I'm looking down, I watch Steve Winwood and Pete Townsend <laughs> and Keith Richards. And, and is that George Harrison? Yeah, it is. You know... So all my heroes were like uh, there, and we were like, oh, for our first song, um, you know, uh, we'd like to do a cover of... Uh... Yes, so, Mac. What's up? Uh, you're still alive, I see. Well, let me tell you what I'm doing. I know all the stories, so you're going to have to... No, I, I don't take any shit. You got to give me the real stuff, all right? Hi, I'm Denny Somak, and this is The Rock Podcast, and today it's an all-British show. We're going to start with the author of a new book, London, Reign Over Me, How England's Capital Built Classic Rock. It looks at how British rock had its beginnings and why we have such a huge classic rock scene, particularly here in America. Stephen Tao weaves together these original interviews, like I said, over 90 of them, and movers and shakers of the time to uncover what's really a basically unique British classic rock birth. So, Anita? Yeah, you know, I'm really looking forward to reading this book and hearing this conversation. And when you were talking about the 90 interviews, it's not like half the people you're not going to know. We're talking right. about the members of Yes, Ian Anderson, uh, Arthur Brown, Spencer Davis, Roger Glover, Greg Lake, Manfred Mann, Dave Mason, Bill Bruford, John Mayle, Al Stewart, Richard Thompson. I mean, he he talked to everybody. And you talked to uh, not only Stephen Tao, but also Bill Bruford, who wrote the books forward. Uh, Bill is one of our engineer Matt's favorite drummers, so I hope he's enjoying this. And Bill started with Yes, as we know, went on to King Crimson, then he toured with Genesis. He had a band called Bruford, and he had two record labels called, and I love it, Summerfold and Winterfold. It's very British on our British show. Bill went back to the University of Surrey. He got a PhD in music. He's 71 years young, retired. He occasionally lectures. And Rolling Stone magazine called Bill Bruford 
number 16 of the 100 greatest drummers. Good. For I mean, you. think about it for a minute. This guy was a founding member of Yes. Then he goes to King Crimson. Then he goes to Genesis. It's like a progressive fan's dream, his life. But anyway, I, we are so lucky to get him. The author, as you mentioned, uh, Bill uh, wrote the uh, foreword of the book. And when I contacted Stephen, I said, well, why don't you bring Bill along? He's retired. He's not doing anything. I was sort of half kidding. So I'm really happy that we got him because he didn't give interviews. And last time I saw him was yes, uh induction into the Hall of Fame. And he was the only one that didn't speak. So anyway, <laughs> here's the interview. Stephen Powell was in Philadelphia and Bill was in uh, England. I'm Denny Somak. And on this show, we have an author. Stephen Tao, and another guest, which I'll introduce in a moment. And Stephen has a book out called London, Rain or Me, uh, How England's Capital Built Classic Rock. And the first thing I want to say is welcome to you and tell you what a great book this is. And we're going to talk a little bit about your background and everything. But you brought along somebody who uh, ended up writing the forward to your book, So he must have been impressed by it. I know he's uh, quoted uh, in a few places, but um, I want to introduce um, Bill Bruford, who wrote the uh, forward. Hi, Bill. Hi, Denny. How are you doing? We've met before. Yes, we have. And it's good to see you. It's been a while, um, but it's great. Last time I saw you was at the uh, induction for Yes uh, in New York when you got inducted into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, that was a big night. Yeah, it was. We'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But uh, Stephen, I, I want you to tell me uh, the genesis of what, you know, tell people what it is that you do, because I was fascinated to find out that you teach a course in classic rock. Is that correct? I do. I, I, I've been teaching that for it actually started as a, like a one credit, just classic rock course, and it expanded to a full three credits history of rock and roll. So you've been doing this since 2017. Yes. Amazing. Amazing. And uh, aren't young people lucky that, that, that they can go to a college and study the history of rock and roll? Boy, I would love that if I was being a kid. Well, you should. I was going to get to this later, but we can talk about this. I mean, you recently got a degree a few years ago, right, Bill? I did. I did and yeah. uh, what is that? Is, is that a what kind of degree was that? I know you're a musicologist, but well, I mean, yeah, yeah, it was a PhD in musicology and uh, the philosophy of music, really music making, psychology of music, particularly. That entitles me to to give lectures and so forth. And I'm supposed to be an expert in the field, Denny. Well, of course. This and is that's, kind of a, this, you can understand already there is a mistake. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, but, does that mean I'm I'm supposed to call you Dr. Bruford? Uh, you could if you like, but don't do that. It'd be <laughs> okay. very embarrassing. All right. So so Stephen, let's you know, give me the genesis of why you wrote the book. Well, I mean, basically I write it because I'm a you know, I'm a fan of music, obviously. And so uh I mean, just to give you an idea, I kind of missed out on that era, you know, as I, I, you know, firsthand. So let's say I was about seven when the Beatles broke up. So um, the music that became popular when I was in my formative years of high school, late 70s, was the mainstream and it was kind of stale uh, and it was OK. And then in college, the MTV era hit and that I didn't get it. It was all about presentation and everybody was talking about the video. Nobody was talking about the music. I found the music really boring and just um, there wasn't really much to it. So that's when I kind of, I think my, one of my roommates, girlfriends handed me a copy of Quadrophenia, obviously the who, and I was like, wow, <laughs> like I've never heard it before. It was, I heard the who, but not that. 
And, and so I just dug into the who and the stones and yes, and Zeppelin and all those Hendrix, all the great stuff from the sixties into the seventies. And uh, that's what I listened to. And that's like in the eighties. So when the nineties happened and that blew up the Nirvana thing, I love that. That was like rock and roll was back. So that was my first book um, about uh, the origins of grunge. And then this, this is kind of going back to my roots, you know, back to the, my own, uh, you know, discovering the sixties and, and, you know, you know, kind of talking about where that came from. Did it uh, take a lot of convincing to get your uh, superiors to allow you to put together a course like this? Uh, it sort of evolved. I actually taught a version of it at a, at a community college like years before. And then, um, uh, you know, I've been at uh, Delaware Valley University, which is, uh, for those who don't know, it's near Philadelphia. Um, and I've been there for now 22 years. And so I, they kind of give me some leeway. And I said I wanted to do a class on this and it sort of developed from there. Okay. Now, how did you get Bill involved? He wrote me an email, and that was one email too many. No, that's okay. <laughs> um, I asked Bill for an interview, and, and, and as you know, Bill is a very serious person and doesn't yeah. suffer fools. And, and so he was like saying, okay, well, you know, what's the premise of your book? You kind of you know, I had to you know, answer questions. And finally, I ended up um, meeting him in uh, Guildford, England. Um, to do the interview and I actually ended up getting on the wrong train. So I almost blew that, but fortunately it, he waited for me and, and we did the interview. So that's how I kind of got introduced to him to begin with. That's great. Um, let's talk about uh, what the book is about. You basically outline, this is the blueprint of how we got to where we are today, the classic rock world. And I think you've done a great account and I think your examples are great and Bill is able to, obviously, he was a witness to a lot of this. So the compliment, uh, his introduction and all the other interviews that you did. I mean, how many people did you interview besides Bill? About 90. Unbelievable. How long did it take you to do this thing? Seven years. Wow. Yeah. I'm oh. impressed. Bill didn't, <laughs> Bill's impressed. He didn't know it either. <laughs> That's a long time. I mean, 90 interviews is really something. Yeah, it is. I know because I've done something similar with 12 uh, top line dramas and it's the, just the sheer generation of text. Yeah. The analysis of the text and finding the bit that you want. It's time consuming like heck. So yeah. my hat goes off to Stephen. So one of the things I, I want to start with, because it's sort of in the first few chapters. And, and I, when I saw this, I said, absolutely, this guy gets it. And I've been to England many times and I've seen a lot of these places that you're talking about. You know, I've been to the Marquee. I've been by uh, El Pai. You know, uh, it just it, and I studied the history, obviously, myself. So uh, but it, it, the best thing is the example where one of the early interviews you talked to Frampton. And he's sort of setting things up because he said he credits the baby boomer generation were allowed by their parents to do a lot more because uh, they were so thrilled to be there after the war. And that sort of set the scene. And, and, and I said to myself, you know, that's right, because he says, you know, we were in America. We didn't really have that. The war was over there. It didn't affect us the, the same way. And music being a big part, my agreeing with him is is that is that correct? And I'd like to get both of you to respond. I mean, absolutely. It's, 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 a, that's what I was trying to get because basically I'm obviously American and a lot of the audience is American. I just wanted to give people the idea, you know, just to let them know that it was a very different experience growing up in England, uh, you know, in Britain, uh, post uh, world war two then. And, and that was really, I think a necessary thing as horrible as the war was obviously uh, and, and, and how it impacted England 
um, that that kind of was necessary in a way, you know, to kind of create this beauty, like I mentioned in the epilogue, the beauty out of this ugliness that we didn't, you know, certainly the baby boomers didn't experience so directly um, here. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, it was ugly. I, I often tell people the only smart thing I did was, um, was get born in 1949 which was a terrific year because that put me at 18 in 1968 when it all kicked off, really. But an awful lot happened. I mean, England was grey, nasty, and just nothing but a bomb crater. Most of the places you list in London was nothing but a bomb crater and, and puddles of water everywhere. Uh, right through until I was 10 or 12, 15 years old, that kind of age. Um, and then suddenly it all burst into colour with the Beatles and Carnaby Street. You know, and so suddenly there was this enormous leap forward and this context and background is entirely unlike the united states which had its own entirely different set of parameters under which musicians were working so it's just an entirely different thing yeah now you also say something Stephen, that i uh, i agree with and bill probably was witness to again and that is and i say this to people and they always say well who's that but i i've done i went behind the uh, and, and studied it uh, all of classic rock began with Chris Barber because he, really, <laughs> he, he sort of expanded. I mean, talk about that. It, 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 he was the guy. Tell us who he was. First of all, Bill, Chris Barber. Oh, Chris, go ahead. Go ahead. Bill. You go ahead Steve. No, no. You, you know more about Chris Barber than I do. Go ahead. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because as, as a, uh, you know, as a fan of music and, and uh, study music, you know, I've obviously heard of John Mayall and Alexis Corner and all these pioneers right. of British blues. Um, but I'd never really heard of him, of Chris Barber. And um, and I just kind of dug him up and, and I found this is one of these people that well into his 80s has a he can memory, you know, remember stuff from 1949. Um, but in a lot of ways, it does start with him. You know, he just kind of he's the one that kind of starts this uh you know, idea of uh, even though he wasn't really a blues guy, so to speak, he was a jazz trombonist. Um, but he brought all these people in that uh, that it just kind of emanates from him. You know, Alexis Corner and uh, you Cyril know, Davis, yeah, and Cyril Davis, Ram Bond, and yeah, all those people. Sure, and of course, he brought over uh, Muddy Waters and Sonny Terry, Brownie McGee, and Sister Rosetta Tharp, and all these incredible musicians, and exposed them to all the the British uh, key people and kids. And they were just, what is this? They've never heard this before. And it just, it's, there's so many things that he did starting the marquee club, for example, uh, that, that contributed to classic rock as we know it. Now uh, he also hired Lonnie Donegan to sing and then the skiffle craze uh, and rock Island line. And, and Bill can probably speak to that. That's really, cause I remember I've interviewed all the Beatles over the years and it was all the skiffle craze, the skiffle craze. That's what got us into it. We all had washboards yeah. and, for listeners who don't know what skiffle is, it was kind of homemade, uh, folksy kind of music on washboard and homemade string, tea chest, bass, uh, rhythm guitar, harmonica, really a homespun kind of music, very rhythmic. And it was just a big hit in, in the UK, as you say, spawned partly by Lonnie Donegan. For a while, it was a kind of flash in the pan thing, but for three or four years, everybody was into, who was into skiffle. And uh, we Brits became accustomed with things like the Cumberland Gap and Rock Island Line. And, you know, what was the Rock Island Line? We, we got used to things like that. And, and uh, we were be- we were being introduced gently to, to uh, Americana. Rock Island Line was a derivative of a, a lead belly tune? Or Correct. Just an old, uh, yeah, okay. 
Now, I want to ask you about some of the places, too, because this really is the other reason that uh, this whole movement uh, took off. Uh, and I think you had so many places to play. Uh, now, the El Pie, I never no, was e- in e- it, but I've been by it. Is it, it's, is it. Did I pronounce that right? No, 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 no. It's, it's Eel Pie Island. Eel Pie it's Island. A, it, it's a, it's a, a, an island in the Thames where, you know, there were a lot of eels. Everybody used to make eel pies. So in the old days, so uh, that's why it's Eel Pie Island. I always wondered how that got the name, but okay. <laughs> and it had a, had a club on it called Crawdaddy, I think. Now, how did uh, how important was that place to uh, to people? Everybody talks about it. It, it is. And in, in fact, the first time I was introduced to it, I think I read Rod Stewart's book and he talked about uh, Eel Pie Island, which was really where he got his start with uh, Long John Baldry's band. Um, but, um, yeah, it just, it became a little sort of haven from this. It's got really got rolling in the late fifties. So it was a haven for a lot of kids growing up and trying to escape that sort of, you know, as Bill talked about that sort of post-World War II bomb site type of experience. And you could see all these additional, you know, there's like traditional jazz bands, eventually R&B or we call blues acts. And it was just a place for kids to go and be teenagers and it really didn't exist before you know there really wasn't a teenage culture before it was like they said short pants to long you were you know kid and then you went to the factory like your dad so this created yeah, yeah. This culture yeah and, we and, were just inventing teenagers yeah right okay now uh, americans weren't attracted to the blues the way the brits were and what you did we all know you know you you, you rejuvenated it and brought it back and gave it back to us. But what was the attraction you think that made the blues start to really take off back in England? It's a good question. I don't know. We have an entirely different attitude to the African-American musician than, than the American citizens did. So blues was a race music. It was played generated for and played to blacks on, on black radio stations. Um, but somehow we invited it straight into London as our guest and our sort of heroic music of the, of the underdog, if you like, the guy who's having a rough time. We, we love that. And, and that bit deep into the kind of university circuit of people here. Blues was welcomed with open arms. And we didn't understand there's any problem with or any difference between black people and white people, really. We don't understand that. There's one event, I think, and Stephen, you talked about it, and I think Bill will confirm this. Because I remember over the years talking to all sorts of people, uh, I think Paul Rogers, when I talked to Roger Earl from Foghat, they all say, well, yeah, back in the early mid 60s, we all went to see this folk blues tour with Muddy Waters and Otis Spahn and Willie Dixon. And they did Manchester. I remember Hilton Valentine telling me, yeah, I went to see them in Manchester. We had to drive six hours. That was a tour that went out that every British uh, musician must have gone to see. Sure. We loved it, and we had a blues boom as a result. We just thought it was great, and so did the American musicians in coming. Yeah. Because the American musicians were, were welcome. It was the first time often that I remember a charming story that uh, four African-American guys saying the first time they'd had a meal with a white guy. And yeah. that was very strange for us people. <laughs> we thought that was totally bizarre. But still, hey, it was great. Now, again, I'm going to throw this out, and Stephen, you're taking it secondhand. Bill can witness witnessed it firsthand, but... Uh, Either of you or both of you can take a shot. You got to explain this because I try and explain it to people. And again, this is something that has come up every time I've interviewed uh, a lot of people. Um, You got to explain the art school culture that you had over there because you talked to Clapton or, 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 you know, Jim McCarty. Well, we went to art school. We went to art school. And and that's where everybody met and these bands came from. But we don't understand what that means. It it Uh, was. Go ahead, Bill. No, no, Stephen, after you, go ahead. 
Um, so it, it was, it's a very, and I think I just had to get myself into the British mindset while I was writing this. And as Americans, like, well, if you're not making a buck, you're not worth anything, you know? And it was a very different uh, experience for kids coming out of, they no longer had to go into the service. It was, you know, um, and they had an opportunity to kind of go out of, you know, grammar school, like our version of high school and go into this little world of art school. And he had all these kids and Bill mentions them. He called them the creative musicians with ideas. And it was a wonderful incubation period for all these musicians that we all know, Pete Townsend and John Lennon and Eric Clapton, all these people just kind of bounced ideas off each other for a couple well, of years. Yeah, it's important to point out that they weren't musicians when they were at art school. Right. They became musicians because art schools are full of all kinds of airy-fairy ideas. Mm-hmm. And usually by people's quasi-intellectual guys who, you know, who have time on their hands. And suddenly everybody could play a guitar. Everybody had a band. Everybody was in a van going up and down the highway to, uh, to play gigs. Because it's not, you know, the, one of the great things about popular music is inclusive. So if you can play three chords and a backbeat, you're in business. Um, and that's where, but, th- but then ideas come in on top of that. So, you know, art school guys had lots of ideas, which, of course, a lot of hardcore rockers didn't particularly care for. So let's put the Beatles over here because they're, they're the Mersey Beat sound. And I guess we start with, for, for London, we start with the Rolling Stones. They were the band in the London area. The Beatles came down from Liverpool and of course they created the scene. The Stones came from Richmond, if I'm not mistaken. Stephen, you can correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, the most important band, I think, next to the Beatles and the Stones, as far as the whole British thing, it's got to be the Yardbird. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the Yardbirds just, um, they kind of, a lot of the bands and the Stones included when they first started were just trying to be very deferential to the blues. And I think the Yardbirds are one of the first to say, you know what, we're not, you know, African-American musicians. We right. are who we are. So we're just going to just let it go. You know, we're going to, you know, they weren't the first necessarily to improvise, but they certainly did that. And they just kind of like, just, where's it going to go? Let's see if we can create our own thing. I think in a lot of ways that draws, they draw people drew from that and just said, okay, we can be confident being British and we don't have to try to emulate the Americans. Bill, did you ever see the Yardbirds play live? Absolutely. Saw them many times with different people. I can't quite remember who. Did you ever see them uh, in the beginning when Clapton was in the band? Yes, I think so. And at the marquee, used to, people used to write on the toilet walls, Clapton for his God, now, which I thought was a bit excessive. I was an okay <laughs> guitar player, but I thought God was a bit strong. Okay, well, that, that of course leads me to the next question, which you know I'm going to ask. No, I don't. Uh, oh, come on. <laughs> you know I'm going to say to you, Bill, yes was the opening act for Cream at the Farewell concert, correct? And that's correct, yeah. So uh, now did you play the mat? There was a matinee and an evening show, correct? Um, I think only an evening show, I think. Well, I, I thought maybe. Rory Gallagher and Taste opened the, the matinee. Oh, but maybe okay. I'm wrong. You, you might be right, right or wrong. I don't remember. I've talked to John Anderson. He, he can't remember either, so don't worry about right. it. But all he, right. he does remember, though, he never got to meet any of the members of the band. Oh, okay. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't talk to anybody. And he also told me that you guys got the gig because the club owner or somebody that Chris and John knew uh, knew somebody in Stigwood's office. And, and it was amazing because you didn't have a record deal then, did you? Yeah, there's a lot, there was a lot of that going on, sure. We, it was a very fast-moving scene. And what you have to bear in mind, what I like about the interviews, actually, uh, the, the common thread running through all these kind of 90 people, really, is that this is an amateur hour. This is an amateur, non-professional business that was growing hand over fist. And everybody was making up the rules as you went along. 
Uh, nobody really knew what a record contract was, but you sort of signed it anyway. You didn't really know anything about that. And you, you made your friends fast and furious to wherever you could. And you, you got lucky sometimes. And yes, got lucky a couple of times. You always needed a lucky break. We got lucky a couple of times, one of which was supporting the cream at the Albert Hall, as you say. The unlucky bit about that was our manager, bless his soul, forgot to tell the BBC to film it, which was a great shame because the camera guys were out to lunch, right? They were out to dinner. Uh, and the camera's sitting there, you know, and I'm looking at the camera thinking, pity that damn thing isn't running, you know, because it's quite a big occasion for us. Man, I got I so excited that. I dropped a stick. <laughs> I remember that. Let me ask you the next thing, uh, which I think was the also helped propel this whole thing. And again, Bill grew up on it and Stephen and I heard about it. How important was the pirate radio scene? Well, I'd say big, certainly. Um, and as, as a, I think this kind of preceded things a bit, uh, but it certainly introduced us to lots of other music. And I remember, uh, you know, listening to it on a, on a crappy old transistor radio. And of course, they had to be offshore because the BBC ran radio effectively in the UK. But let's not diss the BBC. What was great about the BBC is it was playing everything. So if you listen to an hour of BBC, you'll hear some American blues, you'll hear uh, you know, some Stockhausen, some Stravinsky, some folk music, some skiffle. It was great. We just, you never quite knew what you were going to get. So it was all very unprogrammed. It's hard to explain now in a world of processed music and, and heavy programming now. But in those days, it was just very amateur. Also, you weren't really, it wasn't uh, acceptable uh, by the BBC to play records more than three, three and a half minutes, from what I understand. But pirate radio didn't matter. They could have played close to the edge. <laughs> that's perfectly true. I and mean, maybe they would have done. I don't know. I don't know what they did. But, uh, yeah, that's perfectly true. It, it is. And I think that's why when the animals did the House of the Rising Sun, and it was yeah. like over four minutes, it was like so. Like nowadays, we'd be like so. Although, you know, like Bill said, everything is so programmed now. But but it was, that was controversial. And they just, you know, their manager took a stand and said, no, we're leaving it at four minutes. And it really set the precedent for more experimentation. Yes. All right. Now, this leads us to the other outlet, which I think helped expose. And that was a, a TV show called Ready, Steady, Go. That was the thing. That was, was, would you say that's like our Ed Sullivan, Stephen? Uh, I mean, it, as far as the show to get on where everybody would see you. Yeah, I think it was definitely more hip than Ed Sullivan. <laughs> you know? oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But Bill knows what I mean. I mean, everybody. That's how we yeah. all know about yeah. the people. Yeah, it was one of the few national rock broadcasts. And it eventually gave way to Top of the Pops, I think. Right. But Ready, Steady, Go ran for, through the period. And I get, dare say everybody was on it. I mean, the Rolling Stones were definitely on it, I think. I'm not sure Yes was. I don't think we, we did it. But, no, um, Yes didn't. The Beatles actually had a The had Beatles a did it? Yeah, they didn't do it. They had a clip that was shown on it, which oh, was unusual. But clever. I'm sure that, Brian. That's, that's fancy management from Brian Epstein. Of course. Yeah, <laughs> did, this, nice. did, did the same thing over here. We had a show called, uh, I think it was Hullabaloo or Shindig. And the Beatles, yeah. Brian Epstein, had him on as the guest host introducing the film of the Beatles. Ah. That kind of thing. So, all right. Well, that's going to bring us up to uh, the next thing. Uh, I want to try and get through the different phases. That brings us to progressive rock, something, again, totally British. I mean, very hard to explain unless you're talking to a Brit or someone that studied yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so how does how to set it up briefly? I mean, there were so many strands of music running around. 
We've already talked a bit about American blues, uh, then the British version of that with their blues boom, and then very rapidly becoming disaffected with that and moving into popular music like the Rolling Stones did. Um, And psychedelia and, you know, the the underground, and this is very heavily linked in with politics too. Um, And it's a stew, a whole mess of different things. But not having any genre of our own. You know, we had our British version of Elvis Presley. We had our British version of American jazz, a British version of American blues. But somehow we felt because they weren't ours, we could do whatever we liked with. And we didn't uh, hallow them in quite the way that the progenitors did, perhaps. So we, we felt we could sort of trash things, mix and meld and blur and cross genre things. So, you know, a little classical music here, a little bit of something that sounded vaguely folk here in Stephen's interesting phrase, progressive folk, which I thought was a good phrase. Yeah, um, it, and and it, out of this, somebody said, well, that sounds very progressive. Uh, that brings me to my next thing. There's a, there's a couple of people in the folk blues that rock that are all, that purely British. That uh, in fact, we're going to do a, one of our shows is going to be on characters or people that you know the name, but you want to figure out, you know, because we don't, they're not big stars here in the States. And I'm going to give you the three names that I'm talking about. And you're going to know all three of them. Uh, two of them, you know, were actually recording artists on their own. And the other was an influential uh, person in, in one of the main bands. So uh, I'm going to ask you, what is a Roy Harper? What is a Roy Harper? He never happened in America, yet everybody talks about him. And Led Zeppelin wrote a song about him. Hats off to Harper. And I think uh, Jethro Tull had a song about him. And I think he knew the Floyd, too. He was... Um, he's, right. He sang on uh, Have a Cigar. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he was a British institution, um, a lyricist primarily. You might call him a folk musician because he had an acoustic guitar. And he sat down and sang these beautiful songs, which were lyric heavy and beautifully put together. And I think he wrote for some of these big bands that you know then. Uh, But it serves to emphasize that everybody was, the people we're talking about were not famous in those days. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, so Roy would be hanging out with Jimmy Page, quite possibly, and going to some club where he'd bump into somebody from Yes. And it was a a scene. It's what you would now call a classic music scene, particularly in London. Right. Now, the other character... Forgive me the way I describe it. She's certainly not a character, but she's revered in England. We only know her from this group Fairport Convention. She became really famous when she did the only other person to ever appear on a Led Zeppelin record. Um, Sandy Denny, please explain to me why we don't know about her over here. We we really should. Um, In fact, one of my my rock and roll history student, she's got an old soul. She was just listening to Sandy Denny for like constantly for like three days. Um, and uh, that's one of those things that we as Americans need to know more about, about her um, you know, with the Straubs of Fairport Convention on her own. Um, and uh, just uh, wonderful. Uh, her voice, um, like I said in the book, if your hair doesn't stand up when you hear her sing Fathering Gay, there is something wrong with you. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I don't know if Bill can add to that. Okay. Um, not really, except that what 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 the United States got was what it was given by record companies. 
So if you, if you were fortunate enough to have got a record deal and made records that were released in the United States, you would hear about them. Most Americans would hear about them. If you didn't and you weren't released in the U.S. and not everything was, you're not going to hear about Sandy Denny. And Yes was, uh, Yes came close to not making that work at all. So for the first two or three albums, uh, we weren't up to much at all until maybe the Yes album was released in the States and people slowly got the message. My girlfriend at the time, who became my wife, rang the Atlantic office uh, to find out if, uh, if, when Yes was being booked for an American tour. And the woman who answered the phone said, thought that uh, Yes was a, a folk act. And it was unfamiliar with the fact they were on the label, for sure. I don't mean the receptionist, I mean somebody she got through to in mm -hmm. a position of some you know, authority was unfamiliar with what he had on the label. And there's no reason why he should have known that Yes was anything other than a folk group. <laughs> you know, Bill, uh, you just confirmed, uh, I interviewed Frank Barcelona many years ago. And oh. he said when he first it was asked to book Yes, he's the big booking agent from Premier Talent who booked Yes. He, hmm. he said, I thought there was some folk act. So he must have talked to that receptionist. <laughs> he did. <laughs> All right. The other person I want you to just give me, uh, and uh, he's mentioned, but he, everybody I talked to that came in contact with him said he had a, a pretty uh, a forceful uh, effect on things. And that's this guy, Ian Stewart. He was a member of the Stones, but they decided that it shouldn't be a six-piece band, but he, he played with them. And I remember asking uh, Keith one, he said, well, I said, is he a member of the band or, you know, and, and, and Boogie with Stu on, again, Zeppelin, they have a song about him. This guy's like, uh, he was the piano player. And Keith said, well, you know, he plays in our band whenever he feels like it. <laughs> I figured, what, what's the greatest job in the world? You're out. And whenever you feel like it, you play yeah. with the Stones. And if you don't, you just sit on the side of the stage and watch the show. I kind of so like what's, that. What's his deal? I only ever played with Yes when I felt like it, too, <laughs> which was nice. Um, I don't know, but the world was full of such characters. In the same way as you're not going to hear about Sandy Denny unless you've got a record deal. You're not going to hear any more about Ian Stewart unless he's a member of the band. For some reason, known to himself or Keith Richard, maybe, maybe you know, he didn't want to be in the band for some reason or another. I don't know, but the, London was full of such people. Who, like Roy Harper, like Ian Stewart, yeah. uh, like Sandy, uh, who, who weren't somehow going to make that star thing for one reason or another. All right. Well, we, we, we can't, we're going to, I got a few more questions, but we, we can't go too much further without asking about Hendrix because he was American, but he yeah. had to come to Britain and then come back to America. So, and I know over there, you people in Britain saw him in the early days. Uh, before we even knew what was going on. So tell me about any Hendrix experiences. And, and then, Stephen, I want you to, to tell me, was, it, was the, the scene that you're writing about, is that what allowed somebody like a, a Hendrix to rise? Uh, it, Hendrix is, is, is uh, in, and you were talking about where the, a lot of the African-American musicians, how they were treated so much better, um, and, and, and not just treated as equals, but as, as heroes of yes. England, whereas here, of course, it was the complete opposite. And of course, the same thing was with Hendrix. There's a whole story about Hendrix's backstory in America and his, how he got out of the army or on the first airborne and all that stuff. But, but um, yeah, when he went to England and they put a band around him, Chas Chandler from the animals put a band around him and people saw this, it was like, what the hell is this? You know, and like I mentioned, like Greg Lake just 
had had a band called The Shame that opened up for Hendrix. Didn't know what it was, and there was like, "What is this?" And it just we were literally just blown back by it. So we see Hendrix now, and everybody knows this Hendrix. You know what the feedback and playing with his teeth and all that. But back then, nobody'd seen that before. He literally, you know, he changed the rules. He changed the whole game. Yeah. Yeah, he did. But slowly, I would say slowly at first until, you know, celebrated guitarists started putting his name around town. You've got to go and see this. Mm-hmm. I saw him at a, at a dismal place called Bromley Court Hotel, which was really a, a pub. And it, it was only about five people at the bar, which was me and Chaz Chandler and a guy with a flat hat drinking his pint. And Hendrix and his band playing on this little tiny corner stage over there behind us kind of thing. And I was watching and he did the thing with the teeth and smashed the guitar up and stuff. <laughs> and the guy with a flat hat, who just wants a quiet evening out with a pint of beer. He said, oh, I don't think much of this, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we had to play some dumps to start with. But then pretty soon, within about three or four months, I've seen him at Ronnie Scott's, which was the premier jazz club at the time, the star act was Roland Kirk, Rassan Roland Kirk, the uh, saxophone player and multi-instrumentalist who invited Hendrix, who was dining there up on stage to play a blues or two. And uh, it was great, you know, so you wouldn't, that was not really remarkable in London. You would quite easily see that, that somebody at Ronnie Scott's would invite up some blues guy and off you went, you know. It was very free and open. I think that's just, uh, that was what fascinated me too. And Similar, I think, in some ways to the Seattle culture of the 80s, where anything just sort of, it wasn't a big deal. Uh, it was just happened. Um, just yeah. when I talked to uh, you know Judy Diable from Fairport Convention, she's like, all right, well, they're doing a sound check and at the speakeasy, and Jimi Hendrix is in the audience, and and Hendrix just wanted to play. I come up on stage and jam with Richard Thompson. I have Richard Thompson and Jimi Hendrix on stage. I'm like, Judy, what was that like? She goes, I don't know. I had nothing to do. I was knitting. So it wasn't a big deal. It just, just Stuff just happened. Yeah, I think that's right. And of course, nobody knew anybody was famous. Nobody really cared either. There wasn't, nobody at that point was very famous. Even if you were Eric Clapton playing with John Mayo, you know, that band would have been getting 300 bucks a gig. And yes, we've been getting 250 bucks a gig. I mean, this is nothing. You know, nobody was famous at that point. So who's to know that Jimi Hendrix was a big cheese? We didn't know. Maybe after a couple of the big festivals, maybe after Isle of Wight, maybe after some of those, perhaps we started to think, oh, this guy's going to be a star or something. But mostly we weren't thinking like that. Now, I don't know, Bill, if you've ever heard the story, because uh, Chris Squire has told me this story numerous times about when he had the sin, they opened for Hendrix at the Marquee Club. And they actually didn't know it was going to happen. They were supposed to be opening for uh Oh, I forget the name of the band. Uh, and, and Chris said, oh, they were so excited because whoever it was, was had a big hit on the charts and they knew they were going to have a full house. And all of a sudden they find out that the guy is canceled and there's this unknown band that's going to headline. And they're going, oh, man, well, who is this guy? And, and all of a sudden, uh, Chris goes out on stage with the sin and he looks into the audience and he says in the front row, there's Pete Townsend and George Harrison, and Keith Richards, and Eric Clapton, and oh my God, all my heroes are sitting in the front row, and I have no idea who this guy is. So his story is great. So just about every Hendrix story I've heard has been a great story about Yeah, I think, yeah. But of course, hats off to Valentine for bringing him to England. That was a smart move. Yeah. Very smart move, because he knew that the Hendrix would go down a storm in England if 
Thanks. Well, um, I want to thank you uh, for coming in. Uh, Stephen, you have a great book, as I told you. Uh, Bill, I want to really thank you. appreciate you coming on and talking uh, sure, about Danny. the book. You wrote the forward. And Bill, I'll give you, I know you're retired, but uh, <laughs> yes, this, sir. Is, this is a deep dive show. So if you ever feel like uh, doing a deep dive and talking about your books, which I assume are still in print, well, uh, and talking about some of the things you've done, we give you an open invitation. This is how easy it is. You come on and uh, we'll do a deep dive with you. And I appreciate well, it. I appreciate that. That's very kind. And it was good to see you. And uh, Stephen, again, thank you very much. Good luck with the book. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, to Thanks Bill. Bye, guys. Okay, Bye-bye. guys. Thank you very much. Some great stories uh, from Stephen Tao, whose new book is London, Rain Over Me, How England's Capital Built Classic Rock. And it's an excellent book for classic rock fans, available at Amazon. Also, you can uh, check out a couple of books by Bill, including his official story, Bill Bruford, The Autobiography, Yes, King Crimson, Earthworks, and more. You know, you heard them talking about uh, Jimi Hendrix and how everybody had a Hendrix story. Even I have a couple of Hendrix-related stories. Okay. Um, I interviewed Noel Redding. I did a talk show, a really bad talk show. Noel Redding is uh, one-third of uh, Hendrix's backup band. The you experience. are correct, sir. Thank you for playing. Yes, Noel Redding. And, uh, you know, I interviewed a lot of people, and I completely geeked out, as expected. I think you can expect that. And I brought in my Are You Experienced album, <laughs> and he <laughs> autographed it. And I've never done that. I, the, the time Stevie Nicks autographed her album, she did it when I, I left the room for a minute and I came back and she had signed it. I, I, I would never have asked her. And um, Noel Redding did it. And um, yeah, I, I just sat there. Geek. I don't even remember the interview, but I do remember he apparently was was just dropping F-bombs, but because of his thick accent nobody really knew <laughs> and one person who i think caught it said do you did you realize that every other word out of his mouth was fuck 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 and i was like no i was just staring at him i just couldn't believe he was here so that was that um and also uh one night at universal amphitheater in um in la there was a b-52s pretender show mm-hmm. and uh i had a backstage pass but no ticket right. but i wanted to go out and see part of the show the pretenders part and they said, well, go out and find an empty seat and you can sit there. Right. So I went out and I found an empty seat and I sat down and in between acts, somebody got up on stage and they started to say that there were some um, famous people in the audience or something like that. I can't even remember how it happened. And all of a sudden they uh, put the spotlight on the guy sitting next to me and it was uh, Jimi Hendrix's father. <laughs> Al, Al Hendrix. Yes, Al Hendrix, Al Hendrix yeah. was sitting next to me wow. and next to him was the sister. And right. he stood up and I turned and I was like, you're Jimmy's father. Yeah, Jimmy's my, he's my boy. He was my mm-hmm. boy. And I could not believe it. I don't even remember the rest of the show. I don't think I said anything to him, but I just sat there thinking, oh my God, <laughs> here he is. Like, yeah, it was really, really funny. And I have to say that the tri-state area, very lucky to have had WMMR back in the day in Philadelphia, the classic rock station. It wasn't a classic rock station, then it was the rock station because they played the Straubs and they played Fairport. And I I fell in love with Sandy Denny back then. So I think we were some of the few that actually got to hear yeah. that music on the radio. So, Well, anyway, you heard, uh, I mentioned uh, Chris Squire, a bandmate of Bill's uh, in Yes, a co-founding member. And the story he tells is about his pre-Yes band, 
The Sin. That's the band he was in before he formed Yes. And what happened when they opened for an unknown trio at the famous Marquee Club? Chris loves to tell this story, especially in front of an audience. So here it is. When I was in, in The Sin, uh, we always um, did the Tuesday night uh, opening act at the Marquee Club. And because Tuesday nights at the Marquee Club in Wardour Street was, was when the bigger bands played. And honestly, we'd had a terrible uh, week. Uh, we'd been playing in awful places like Stoke-on-Trent, which is like part of the, you know, the industrial north, which really isn't there anymore because all the industry finished. But, um, uh, and it had been pouring with rain, and we'd been driving up and down motorways. And, and uh, you know, I believe we showed up at the marquee with just enough gas in the van to get there. Uh, but no problem, because we knew we were opening for Cliff Bennett and the Rebel Rousers, who were uh, uh, a big band. They had a big hit with the McCartney song, Got to Get You Into My Life. It was a number one record. So we thought, great, because the way they structured um, the payment of the marquee, the, 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 obviously the main band took most of the money, but even if you were the opening act, you got a break over a certain amount of attend people buying tickets. So we thought, oh, well, okay, at least we'll be able to you know, get through the weekend and pay for a few things and um so of course to my amazement we, we show up there and we bring our equipment in the back door and um there's a few chairs sit, sitting around and then on the stage there's um these three guys rehearsing and uh and i s sort of like sat there and listened to them and i thought this is very peculiar because the marquee never let anyone rehearse there it was like one of their rules i thought why is this band being allowed to rehearse and the, uh, and, and the guitarist was a black guy, and he was going to the bass player. Da, 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 da. And, of course, you guess who it was. And so Noel Redding was da, 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 da. Uh, it was like, I wanted to go and take the bass from him and say, no, it's these, it's these five notes. <laughs> and, so, and so, of course, meanwhile, my heart was sinking because I was thinking... Where's Cliff Bennett and the Rebel Rousers? Who is this band? So I walked out the front, and there was this guy, Jack Barry, who was the assistant manager. I said, what are these guys doing rehearsing? And when are Cliff Bennett and the Rebel Rousers showing up so they can set their gear up and we can put ours in front? And he goes, no, I just had a call from the office. This is the main act tonight. I went, what? They, they can't even learn five notes together. Uh, and so, I, you know, they finished rehearsing. We set our gear up. Uh, no, and I went into the dressing room as I, I just started uh, that thing of changing my bass strings, you know, like every night to keep them all fresh and everything. And um, and so the, the what's remarkable here is this is the, the first black guy I'd ever had a conversation with in my life. So because I came from very white middle class upbringing, and there was a guy from India in my school who was in another grade. And, but, you know, I, I might have said hi to him, but he wasn't really in my year. And um, so this is the first black guy I've ever talked to. So, so of course, uh, Jimmy goes, yeah, a friend of mine in Seattle's got a Rickenbacker bass. And I thought, well, that's odd. This guitarist is talking to a bass player, because normally that didn't happen in those days. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, bass players talk to each other, guitarists talk to each other. But very, and so... I had, you know, I was changing my strings and we just had a half an hour conversation. Of course, all the while I'm thinking, and this guy's got this awful band that no one's going to come and see. And so, so I went down to the, 
to the little cafe on the corner. Uh, I won't be too much longer. There's a little, little cafe on the corner called, uh, I think it was, uh, not the Geoconda, but Forensia, I think it was called, uh, where, yeah, and so, and we were just eking out our last uh, our pennies to, like, have the cheapest thing on the menu to eat in there that we could just about scrape together. And as we're sitting there, uh, the line for the, for the club starts to go past the window of the, uh, of the, of the restaurant. And we think, oh, my God, look at that, you know, dessert. <laughs> and, uh, and then we finished our meal, and I went back to the Marquee Club, and there's the same assistant manager taking 10-bob notes that were recorded in those days, which was like, well, I don't know, 50 cents or something. And um, uh, he, uh, or oh, a dollar probably more like, uh, and I said, Jack, what is going on? And he goes, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so I, I found my way back to the dressing room. We got ready. And then the manager, this guy called John G, arrived. And, and he always came in and said, two minutes before you go on. And I said to him, John, why are all these people here? This band is awful. You know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and he said, don't ask me either. Just the office called and that's who the headline is. And he said, so there's a bunch of people, so... Be happy about that. So I walked out on stage. I went up to my mic and, like, you know, testing, one, two, one, two. Uh, and the way the club was set up, there was about 40 seats in the front row. Uh, well, four rows of about 15 seats in each. And as I'm testing my mic, I'm looking down. Oh, it's Steve Winwood and Pete Townsend <laughs> and Keith Richards. <laughs> and, and is that George Harrison? Yeah, it is. <laughs> you know, so all my heroes were like uh, there, and we were like, oh, for our first song, um, you know, <laughs> uh, we'd like to do a cover of, uh, you know, something. Motown. Oh, was a good uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, later on, when I got to know Pete Townsend, I just said, do you remember that night when we, the sin opened for Hendrix? And um, he said, yeah, I said, I, I, I said, Everyone was applauding, but was that, like, applause for, like, great, get off, you know. <laughs> uh, he, and, and, and Townsend sort of said he thought he liked it, but uh, I wasn't sure. <laughs> he would uh, And um, so, of course, everyone in the world had showed up at the Marquee Club, and including the Beatles and the Stones, to, to watch Hendrix. And, and I couldn't even get out of the dressing room because the people were just pressed up against it. Yeah. So I went and... Um, just sat on uh, the grand piano, which was behind Mitch Mitchell's drums, uh, on the stage. And, uh, of course, I was totally blown away. It was just uh, amazing. And, and I'm also seeing, like, Eric Clapton going, oh, my God, I'm not God anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You know, he, his jaw was dropping. And, was like, and I thought, this is surrealistic. And, of course, just as a little underscore to the story, because it is over now, but there's a, <laughs> um, all, all the, all the uh, girls who used to, like, hang out at the rock and roll bar and stuff, who would never talk to me before, after I'd been on that stage with Hendrix, they're like, you know, oh, Chris, you know, <laughs> buy you a drink? And, uh, yeah, well, I played it up, you know, me and Jim, yeah. What did you think of that story, Anna? Oh, no, you're right about the, he loved it, yeah. It, it was a fun story, and I was yeah. so happy that the people were so into it. It was a nice moment. It really was. I've got to leave before I start to scream Someone's locked the door and took the key You're feeling all right 
So it was uh, recorded by Dave Mason in Traffic, but also Feeling All Right recorded by Grand Funk and Three Dog Night, Rare Earth did it, David Ruffin did it, Lulu and Lou Rawls did it, Gladys Knight and the Pips recorded it, Isaac Hayes recorded it, and even the Jackson Five. Now, I I have the story on the Jackson Five, because uh, as you'll see in this interview, I've known Dave for a long time, and I I asked him of the story. And what happened was uh, on one of Dave's albums, and I can't remember if it was Old Crest of a New Wave. I think it was the one after that, because I think the song is called Save Me. Anyway, Dave was in a recording studio in L.A. He walks out in the hall, and this kid comes up to him, Michael Jackson. And he goes, I know you. You're Dave Mason. And Dave looks at what? And he goes, ah, my brothers and I, we cut a version of that song on our third album. I know exactly who you are. Big fan. So Dave said, oh, okay. And, and Michael said, well, what are you doing here? He goes, well, I'm working on a new album, probably the same thing you're doing. And uh, Dave said, uh, you want to sing on my album? And Michael said, sure. And that's how it happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, uh, I, I guess the best, you could say the best version, although I love the traffic version, yeah. uh, but Joe Cocker's version. Now he did it live, I'm sure, with Leon Russell and Mad yeah. Dogs and everything, but he recorded it with some uh, pretty heavy people, uh, Carol Kay on bass from The Wrecking Crew, and Mary Clayton was one of the backup singers, yeah. and uh, a guy called Artie Butler is on piano, and he's legendary. He was an arranger from the Brill Building days, and uh, he's on Leader of the Pack, remember walking in the sand solitary man and he was the guy who suggested to louis armstrong that he should record what a wonderful world with which the record company was very against he arranged that and um the song is known as feeling all right with a question mark and also feeling all right without a question mark it's 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 correct either way so just so you know if you're ever on jeopardy (laughs) and they want to know right Either way. So tell me about your recent conversation with Dave Mason. Okay. Well, uh, Dave's a rock and roll hall of famer, a founding member of the legendary band traffic, of course, a great guitar player. Uh, those of you that don't know, he played rhythm guitar on Hendrix's version of all along the watchtower. Full disclosure. Uh, I've known Dave for over 30 years and I actually executive produced one of his albums. It was called two hearts. It was on Voyager MCA. It came out in 1987. So anyway, I asked him about his new re-recorded or reimagined album, Alone Together, which was that great solo album that he did uh, after leaving traffic. He's done a a new version of it. And uh, we discussed his tumultuous relationship with traffic co-founder Steve Winwood and any possible reunion tour. Uh, his uh, forthcoming autobiography. And for the first time, he tells what happened at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony when he refused to play Dear Mr. Fantasy. Uh, I was with him, so I saw the whole thing. And this is a very candid and uh, humorous interview. Um, But you know what? It's like we're, we're like the inside baseball for classic rock fans. So this interview sort of felt like that. And uh, here's Dave Mason in conversation exclusively for the rock podcast. Yes. So Mac, what's up? You're still alive. I see. Well, let me tell you what I'm doing. 
I know all the stories, so you're going to have to – no, I, I don't take any shit. you got to give me the real stuff, all right? Maybe. We'll see. Okay. So first of all, I'm going to ask you about what – what are you paying me for the real? If, you know, the real stuff is expensive. Okay. Well, okay. This this is a the you have alone together. This is the new version that you're alone putting together. out fifty years later. Yes. Are you aware? You must be, but I don't know if you anybody's asked you this. Are you aware that you now have the only real master because the original album master was lost in the 2008 Universal Fire? Yeah. You oh, know yeah. that. Sure. Of course I do. Okay. I figured you did. But, you know, so I just figured I'd start off by telling you that. Why, are you going to make me an offer for it? No. <laughs> so, okay. So tell me, you've been, pl- I know you've been planning this thing for a long time. You finally got around to it. How long did it take to do? I don't know. It's within the last 10 years or eight years or so that I just started screwing around. Well, I was living, started putting World in Changes together back when I was living in Ojai, California. So that's 15 years ago. So I started playing around with my songs and, you know, created that version of World in Changes and just been sitting on it. Um, and then just sort of thought about the alone together stuff. I mean, it was more or less just for fun I was doing it. I really wasn't doing it for any other purpose than that, really. We were on the road about, um, I'm trying to think, a few years, not too long back. And um, I had a day off, and so we went in the studio with the band and just and laid all the tracks down for all the other songs that, you know, in a, I think maybe it took about an hour to do, do it. I mean, we played them live. So I had all, all the stuff, and then, you know, it was just getting closer to the, um, well, there's 50 years coming up. So I started to try and piece it together and, and, and stuff. And we had, it, we had it all planned eventually to actually, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd um, I mean, you've seen, did you get a CD? No, not yet. Oh, Winifred. I would love one and I'd love one signed by you. You go grab it or something. How much are you going to charge me? Ah. Oh, a lot. It's going to be expensive, man. <laughs> it's going to be expensive. Um, so anyway, the point being is that I took, you know, I did, we had it, we actually had it already ready to go. Um, eventually got, I got talked into, well, you know, put the damn thing together and put right. it out. And then the other part about it, of course, is I do have a, a version of World and Changes that is the same arrangement as the original. Right. Okay. And also, by the, I think if you buy the CD, I'm pretty sure. If you buy the CD or you download the whole album, right? Uh, which is the Shelter BMG has the, I gave them all the digital rights. Right. And so, but, but if you, either one, I, I think you can get a free, you, you can go get a free download of, if you want that version. No, Me, I want the version I, signed by you. Well, I, I, I put the new, I've, you know, I really thought about it and I was like, you know what? Fuck it! I, I I'm gonna put the new version on on this because it would right. it's cool and it's now and let me put something in there that's like you know right right and because it, it, it came out really cool so it was like what the hell um, anyway so that's um, I was ready to go on the actual date right ah look at that great that's great 
<laughs> Amazing how, how many people know that album from that Marvel so thing. This is CD, which is, of course, only available at DaveMasonMusic.com. Okay. Now, let's talk about some of the other stuff you're doing. You put out Feeling All Right. Um, is that just a one-off, the video, and, and or is it a download? What's the story on that? It's always, it's always there for viewing on my website. There's, a, there's some cool stuff on my YouTube channel. Right. When you go to DaveMasonMusic.com. I will have that. I'll be saying that a few times during the interview. Okay, not a problem, Dave. And by the way, <laughs> if we do a video, we'll, we'll do a crawl across. But I know you will. <laughs> uh, did you put that great video with you and Phoebe Snow on your website? You know what? Actually, um, what I need is if you have a copy. You need I, a copy? I, I don't have it. Okay. If you right. got, If you can find it for me, Denny, and let me... And get me a, 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 um, a link to it, then I could. Yeah, that'd be great. I should. I, of course, I, I would love to have it up. There. Yeah, it's called the dreams I the dreams I dream, and right. it, was, it went to number eleven on the adult charts when it came yeah. out. It's a great yeah. song. You know, I meant to ask you because most people probably don't know this. You had a lot to do with discovering Phoebe Snow or playing her with her first album. Or what's the deal there? My my first wife Lorraine um, got um, turned me on to Phoebe. Okay. She happened to be in be when she first got going and um, was out there in, in L.A. in Hollywood. Right. Uh, you and, play on the first album, right? Yeah, I, yeah. Actually, I am. I, I don't. I forget what track. Um, but that's kind of how I first met her. Was out there, so so stayed friends. You know, up until when she passed. I saw you last time. I saw you was with Steve Cropper. That was an amazing tour. That recording is available at DaveMason.com. That, too, that right? show is, is, is available. Yes, it is. That was a Absolutely. great show. Absolutely, it is. It was, it, it's actually a pretty cool CD. Yeah. Now, you, are you in Hawaii or are you in Nevada right now? Uh, I am in Mount. I'm in Hawaii. You're in Hawaii. But you go, still go back and forth or you spend all your time in Hawaii now? With the advent of, um, of the pandemic um, yeah. and the fact of the matter that you know as of march of this year right and as of god knows when right you know i got no money coming in you know i'm right yep so i we we figured you know what we need to um we need to we need to move some assets around right (laughs) and decided that you know we weren't in love with it and, and and just for now we let the Reno place go. Right. And why not? I mean, it's, it, it's, an, it's a crazed seller's market. Right. Uh, right. Sure. And in Reno, for sure it was, it was like, it's nuts. The first people that came in, you know, they gave us the asking price. It was nuts. So it was like, right. well, what the hell? Jeez. And then we're going to just come over here. I mean, thank God we have this place. We're lucky. I'm blessed. Right. We got to sit this out in, in a place like this, you know, but as of now, I mean, I don't know when, you know, we'll go back to work. I mean, UTA, which is my new agency, is they're kind of hoping and planning. Right. June, July, you know, it's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of background people that are just right. struggling their ass up here. Road crews, you know, all that stuff. It's, right. it's, are you working on a book? From from Facebook fans and the fans, right? 
and, and my wife and everybody write you should write a book you should write a book so eventually i got badgered into writing a book right so we're writing the book i'm doing doing it with a co co-writer right chris Epkin, um real nice guy great researcher because right. thank god because places and times and stuff mm-hmm. forget it with asking me you know right uh, when you're writing a book is when you go, Sam, and I wish I'd have kept a diary. <laughs> right, right. I don't remember even half the stuff. So, yeah, only it's... Uh, you have a title? Only you know and I know. Uh, of course. If we finished it in January and we got it to somebody, right. it would be, it'd be 2022 before this thing right. ever came. That's right. That's right. And screw that. I'm, I'm going to be 75 in next May. I'm going to put it out myself. I ain't got time to wait for that nonsense right. anymore. Besides, so, like the record business, they give you an advance and you got to pay it back. So who needs that? Yeah, no, no. So I think we're going to sort of, but there is a boutique um, publisher that wants it. Right. With a lot more free and, and the ability to see, I, if I'm going to finish it in January, right. Then I, by the time we all go back out on the road, right. I want it go you know yeah. i don't want to sit around until 2022 do it yourself and take it as a have it on the on tour to sell well, we're, set, we're, we're, we're set up to do that and i will do that but right. but i but i but i've got like i said there's there's a boutique publisher that's very that really want okay uh, and to have somebody deal with all that other right. stuff and deal, right. but be able to you know get it out they'll there be and, able to get it out faster yeah yeah, you know, I mean, where's it going? It's going to say Amazon. It's going to, you know, say they're all going the same places, right. for Christ's sake. Right. So, uh, some of so the bigger ones may have better, quote, shelf positioning, yeah. but, you know. Okay. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, it's just the, um, I mean, I suppose looking at it, you know, just try to step back objectively. Yeah. Um, there's not many, if any, People left. Yep, have been there as long as I have, right? And that have probably played with more significant artists. And still able to talk about it. And still able to talk about it. And so, you know, that for that reason, you know, aside from the personal um, side of one's life, you know, which right. is also for me part of the book, right? It's it makes for an interesting story. Yeah. So have you heard anything from uh, Winwood these days? What's going on with him? <laughs> Does he know you were doing those traffic songs recently? <laughs> What's he up to? Have you heard from him? He... I, Winwood? Yeah. Winwood doesn't talk to me. Winwood just... Well, there's still a chance you guys will play together again, right? Come on. I really doubt it. Last, com- last comment, which was about four or five months ago about doing this with the uh, was we uh, we oh we have I mean aside from all the comments that he's made along the way like you right. know I was nothing more than an invited guest in traffic or yeah. you know this and that that his last comment a few months ago was well no we we I we have totally different musical tastes and and I'm putting a new thing to it. that was his thing so right just it's all bullshit okay. but a traffic reunion uh, or a well, if you and he get together, that's a traffic reunion. Yeah, well, it would be it would be hugely successful, but it, but that doesn't seem to want to sway anything. 
for some reason, I don't know what his stick up his ass about me is. I never have. Other than I wrote the hits. I know. I, I was I was there. I know you probably don't remember because it was a crazy night. I was there when you got inducted into the Hall of Fame. And oh. I was there when Paul Schaefer came and that whole kerfuffle. And you refused <laughs> to play on Dear Mr. Fantasy because he wanted you to play bass. And you didn't do that. And then Paul Schaefer said, hey, let's do Feeling All Right. And they ended it with that anyway. Correct? Yeah. No, no. I mean, I was going to get up and play. I just didn't want to play it was like, well, we're going to do it just like the record. And I, from that point, is you know, <laughs> I, didn't know, I didn't know what was going to happen. You know, what we right. I thought we'd do a couple of songs or something, but it came down to one song. Right. The Winwood Camp dictated the whole process we're doing. Do Mr. Fantasy? And I never spoke to him. It was always right. emissaries talking to me. We're going right. to do Mr. Fantasy. Is how it all came down. We're going to do Mr. Fantasy, and we're going to do it just like the record. Right. And I'm like. Wait a minute. That's I was 19 years old when I did right. that. I was like fucking nearly 70 years, so right. or 60 odd. And I don't play bass, and I haven't played bass in years. Right. We've got one of the greatest bass players. Oh, um, yeah. right. I said, let's use him, and I'll just play acoustic guitar. Right. Right. I'll play rhythm. No, that ain't gonna happen. Right. Oh no. Originally, I said no. We'll. We'll get up and I'll, you and me will just get up there with electric guitars and just right. fucking let it go. That ain't going to happen. Uh, okay. I'll play acoustic guitar. Right. That ain't going to happen. This is, this is quoting. Right. I'm quoting. Yeah. I'm paraphrasing. Right. So I just said, you know what? Fuck it, you guys. You got to go ahead. Play. Get up there. Right. All right. So we're going to look forward to your, uh, to your book, but basically you're going to be out there. As soon as things get back a little to normal, hopefully you're going to be on the road. You're going to be doing a lot from this album, right? What, uh, who you taking your regular band? You got any additional people with you? No, I mean, I'll probably go out and do that. Do just this. I mean, I was actually talking to, uh, with, uh, cause I did a little Facebook thing with, with, with Bonnie Bramlett. I saw part of that on Facebook. Yeah, That was, that was great. And I thought maybe, we were talking about me and her going out and doing a little storytellers thing. That would be dynamite. Yeah. So that would be, that'd be kind of fun to do. Yeah. So I'm going to see if, if that we can make that happen. And other than that, you know, it's just, yeah. <laughs> just getting, <laughs> just getting back out there, getting back to work. Yeah. <laughs> see how that goes. Well, I met Dave, uh, one time he, uh, opened for Warren Zevon in 1982 and I was on the road with Warren and we were at a sound, we were at soundcheck at a place called the celebrity celebrity something the celebrity theater right in uh, phoenix i believe mm-hmm. and we walked into soundcheck and there was dave struggling to remain upright while doing his soundcheck on a revolving stage and warren was like why why is the stage moving and i went over to the guy and i said what's with the stage and he said, well, this is a dinner theater and stage revolves. And I'm like, well, the <laughs> stage could revolve, you know, after a couple of songs, you can turn it to a different part of the audience since it's in the round. But there's no way that Warren Zevon's going to get up on that stage and play while, this, while it's revolving. But Dave did it. <laughs> and I'll never forget, we we're standing there and he came off and he was literally dizzy. He had to hold on to stuff. And he was like, man, that was tough. You know, and I, I could not believe 
that he went out and did his whole show on a revolving stage. And I think he, he was pretty much alone at that point, yeah. alone together. And uh, so I thought, good sport, right? And a warrior. Uh, but the reason I, th- I think um, he sounds like he's from L.A. or <laughs> the West Coast is because he, you know, from he moved Worcester, to the West- England. Yes. Well, he moved to the U.S. permanently uh, in 1971. Mm-hmm. And he's done some really good stuff. He's a proponent yeah. of music education for children. He supports Little Kids Rock. It's a nonprofit that provides free instruments to kids in American public schools like they used to do. I, I know I got yeah. a flute. Um, he co-founded Rock Our Vets. It's an all-volunteer charity that helps veterans and families of law enforcement and firefighters who lost their lives in the line of duty. And he provides food and clothing and computers to homeless vets. And I'm sure there's even more. So good guy. Really, yeah, really good yeah, guy. Um, you should be proud to call him a friend. Yeah. And by the way, uh, if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. Check out our website. Contact us. We, we'd love to hear from you. By the way, we got great response to uh, John Densmore's appearance on the show. So we will do another one on the doors uh, uh, in a while. But I, I can't believe the response we got from that. Anyway, you can reach us, uh, hello at therockpodcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter. And we're at The Rock Podcast. Check out our website. Till next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.